Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have a very, very exciting founder today. You know, someone that has done it so many times. Oh my God, you know, I've, I can I can even lose track. So again, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, selling, you know, getting acquired, I mean, you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chris Dean. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. I'm happy to be here. So originally born and raised there in San Diego, you know, and I know that the family, you know, really likes surfing. So how was life growing up? It was great. You know, we had the world's smallest house, but it was on the beach and we were all crammed in there. I loved it. I, you know, I went in the water every day for years. I live in San Francisco now and the water's just a little bit too cold for me. You know, growing up in San Diego, it's warm here. It's freezing. So, so obviously, you know, like the water, the surfing, I mean, what, what got you into this technical side of things, into, into the engineering? I love math. I mean, I always have. I always, I don't understand why other people don't love it. It's like the funnest thing ever. Um, you know, so I did well in high school. I went to, you know, university, did well there. Um, I, you know, was a physicist. And in the world of physics, I was the best computer scientist. And in the world of computer scientists, I was the best statistician. So obviously that pushed me into machine learning because that was great because I was always the person who knew the other side of the problem. You know, I did research for a while at JPL, which is, um, you know, run by Caltech, where I went to the university. My advisor was head of labs there. And that was a great experience. And I, I just loved that. That was maybe the best job I ever had, sitting alone in a room with a whiteboard. So in your case, I mean, obviously you go to Caltech uh, and then you eventually move to San Francisco. Uh, and I know that moving to San Francisco was a little bit of a shock, no, on seeing, you know, all the innovation and all the good stuff, you know, happening around you. So uh, so how was that experience for you? It was, uh, it was great. I mean, I was not prepared, that's for sure. My wife wanted to move up here to take care of her parents and so I thought, I'll do that until I decide, you know, where I want to go next, you know, maybe go down to Stanford or, you know, once or more, somewhere like that. But I got a job at a startup. It was my first real job. I literally did not know what a startup was. I was the first employee there. And it was, you know, something that I was a subject matter expert in. Um, it was this machine learning AI stuff. And we built a company around that. And it was very, very early. This is like dot-com days. And oh my gosh, is this a poorly run company? And I loved like my peers there, but I don't think the management was really in control, you know, drugs and sex and chairs thrown across the room and like court orders preventing one founder from entering the building. It was just no fun, except I love the startup part of it. I love talking to customers. I love building the thing. I love figuring out what people actually wanted. That was so interesting. And I, once, once I had done that for like, even just a year, I was like, well, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, there was a, a company that you got going there, you know, and, 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 and basically what they were doing was AI machine learning. I mean, AI machine learning back then, I mean, nobody really talked about this. Now, you know, AI and machine learning is absolutely everywhere. Everyone is talking about, you know, implementing it from some shape or form. But back then it was kind of new. 
So uh, quite innovative. Yeah, it was very new at the time. I mean, I um, had the, you know, Paul and I had the largest machine learning problem ever solved, right, or ever worked on. Like, we had these massive networks of computers we had, you know, put together. Um, at the time, they were gigantic. Now they're kind of a rounding error. You know, it's like if you look at a modern system, they're, you know, thousand times, three orders of magnitude bigger than what we worked on. And it was super interesting, really fun. And I found the thing that was kind of the aha moment for me was that the quality and amount of the data were the thing and less so the algorithm. And over time, I spent time looking for more and more data, more and more great data. And that's partly what led me to the job is that they had actually good behavioral data. And they had a lot of it. And that's why you know, I thought oh, I can do this. So after this one, you know, you ended up going to Baby Center. Uh, now, that, w- that was quite an interesting run because the company got acquired, but then the company that acquired you went bankrupt. So uh, so I guess, you know, how is it, you know, like really achieving the highs of everyone celebrating? Hey, you know, we made it. We made it to the finish line. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, like the, the, <laughs> the whole thing, you know, comes uh, crashing down. It was it was it was a ride for sure. So I loved the work at that first startup, that AI startup. But I realized it didn't actually tell me how to run a business. So I did what any, you know, you know, scientist engineer would do. I flipped some variables around. I said, okay, let's look for another startup, but something where the business model is completely obvious. And Baby Center, it's basically it was a magazine online about, you know, you're pregnant, you're gonna have a baby, or you have a newborn, how to take care of them. There's ads that said at the top of the page that say you should buy a minivan. That makes sense to me. You know, I understand that business. I don't know if it's a good business, but at least I understand it. And that was an amazing experience. You know, it was run by some really just superb product managers. And like you said, we got bought by eToys. eToys was perhaps less well run, but that IPO day, oh, it was so fun. You know, I got those friends and family shares. Went from twenty dollars a share to eighty dollars a share. I sold it the first day, made sixty thousand dollars. That was amazing, and on paper, I was worth many, many, many times that. And I'm running the engineering um, website group at eToys. You know, it was the big, busiest traffic site in the world at the time, and that was great. And then we went bankrupt, and I made nothing. I made that sixty thousand dollars that I made on that first IPO day was all the money. I ever made out of that company except for my salary. And that was also an aha experience. Like, oh, maybe being rich on paper is not the most important thing here. <laughs> maybe you should actually have re- create real value. And that was that was a journey for sure. But that for sure, you know, like uh, gave you access to um to saying, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go at it on my own and I'm gonna start my own company. So what happened there for you to say, hey, you know, I think that maybe, you know, I'm gonna go at it with this idea. I think this idea has legs and I think it's my time. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly what happened. Um, Some buddies and I from um, Baby Center actually, we said, okay, we're great working together. We're really smart. Um, Let's pick a new problem. And we picked more of an enterprise software problem where we could, you know, help corporations um, hire and manage people. And you know, it turns out that every company hires and manages people. So we picked our particular area and we dominated that area. It turned out it was a very small market, but we did dominate it. And eventually we sold that company for you know a good amount of money. We took very little outside capital. So that was a good exit for everyone. We're very happy with that. And I know that the exit was 200 million, 
So, uh, at least, you know, as some, something along those lines, you know, you took little capital. So, you know, I'm sure that, you know, there was some splurging there that came out of the way, you know, uh, out of that yeah. amazing outcome uh, on your end, because, I mean, that's a lot of money. So I guess, um, you know, from that um, from that experience, you know, where, you, I mean, obviously, incredible outcome, right? Your first company, first uh, exit like that. What did you learn from seeing the full cycle of a company, you know, going the full cycle from idea to product market fit to fundraising to scaling to exit? I mean, what what was that visibility what, that, 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 that you gain access to by going through that? Sure. So I found the things I was interested in so I could focus on those. And I also found the things that were important and where, you know, I realized where those weren't the same thing that I had to find a buddy, I had to find a partner who was good at the things I wasn't good at, right? Or was interested in things I wasn't good at. And for me, things that are important here, A, you gotta have the right problem. Like if you're doing a problem that no one cares about, no one's gonna pay you any money, if no one's gonna use it, doesn't matter. You gotta have that product market fit. And then second, you have to surround yourself with the absolute best people. Like we had a highly productive product team and it was known for in the industry for being the best and the most highly productive. And we are also an order of magnitude smaller than most of the other folks. And why is that? Because every individual was just outstanding, just incredibly, incredibly good. I still, you know, the, all, so many of those people went on to found other companies, become rich themselves. And that like showed me that like my job as a leader is to, is to pick the right problem and then to make sure that I have people around me who can execute. Now, there are things I don't really love, right? But I love managing the people and I love work talking to customers. And like, those are what I am focusing on. Fundraising at Merced was very easy. That's this company because, you know, uh, we tried to raise money right before 9-11. It's that, you know, it's a 20 whatever year old company. And we got all our term sheets pulled um, because of that, um, because 9-11, like it was just terrible tragedy. Hard to get through, but we ended up raising money after that. We, and because of the times, we ended up raising just a few million dollars. But that was enough to get us started, and we ran on that for years. We didn't raise any more capital, and for just quite a while. And that made it so that you know everyone involved had a really great exit. Now, in this case, you know the exit. What did that look like? I mean, how did the exit you know come together? You know, was it like a process that you guys decided to start? You know, was it uh, you know some inbound that came through, and then you know what were the events that needed to unfold for the deal to close? Sure. I mean, like a lot of these things, it wasn't out of the blue. Um, really, it was. We had um, an existing partner who was bigger than us in this in a similar and adjacent space. And they wanted to expand and they knew that we were, you know, the gold standard. So they um, approached us at some point and wanted to deepen the partnership. And then very soon after that, they made a, you know, an, a, they made overtures to acquire us. And then it was pretty easy after that. You know, there was negotiations and, you know, we wanted a number and they wanted a number, but eventually we met in the middle and it was, it was easy, right? And it's, often these things are easy. This is to contrast that with the babysitting during the dot-com times where that was very different. And during um, the babysitter one, and I was not the founder there, so I was not like in privy to this, but we had an offer from Amazon in hand back at babysitter. And um, eToys came to us and offered us like many, many more times that offer. So we took the eToys offer. 
maybe in retrospect, I wish we'd have done the opposite because, you know, Amazon still seems like a pretty good company. And eToys is completely bankrupt. But when the Merced acquisition happened, it was pretty easy. It was very straightforward and, you know, went fast after that. I would imagine that if we had said no during for the Merced acquisition, there were not there would not have been a second offer. We'd still be we'd still be running that. Um which I think was smart of us to take the offer. Now, I guess, you know, after the um the acquisition, you know, of of, of Mercer Systems, you eventually went on to uh do some consulting, you know, and you were also uh semi retired. Uh but then, you know, you came out of retirement. Now, one thing that is very interesting there is, you know, as they say, an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And obviously now, you know, you created another company. And we're going to be talking about your latest baby here. But before that, I mean, you came out of semi-retirement to be the employee of another company. I mean, come on. Entrepreneurs are unemployable. So, so what happened? <laughs> it's true. Well, they're very early. My buddy Dan was running this company called Standard Treasury. It's a banking software company. I know a lot about software. I know at the time I knew zero about banking. I had a bank account, that's all. But, you know, he convinced me in the room. He said basically, look, they were having some founder drama. He was having some founder drama. He needed to replace his technical co-founder. Would I come in and run the technical group? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but he could, you know, but he did that thing that, you know, you can do sometimes where he took me out for a three hour long, um, you know, cup of coffee and he convinced me in the room. It's very hard to sell me in the room, but Dan did. And, you know, I, I love the problem. And the more I learned about banking and, you know, the U.S. banking system, the more I became more interested in it. And, you know, that led me to take the job. He had, he had a very small team, but it was a great team. And that, that was a mark of excellence to me. Like, if the people you surround yourself with are great, then maybe there's something here. And so that's, that was the reason. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
So then what happened there? Because obviously you guys, again, you know, you go through another acquisition with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, uh, you know, you thought, uh, I'm going to get out of here, but uh, you stay there quite a bit. But this was the immediate step that needed to happen for you to start your next company. So, you know, as they say, ideas, you know, they take time to incubate and we don't even know that they are there, but, uh, you know, definitely the idea was there of Treasury Prime and, and I guess, you know, at what point do you say, okay, I think that I really got to go with this one. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank was our first client and they heard rumors that we were going to be purchased by Wells Fargo. And that was not true, but they heard rumors and they wanted to buy us, to lock us in, to make sure that they had access to our software and no other bank did. So, okay. I expected to stay for, you know, a minute, a couple months while my folks got settled. It was a decent acquisition. I mean, people bought houses and stuff, but no one bought like a brand new plane. It was just it was a fine acquisition, but um, I didn't think I'd stay because like you said, like I'm an entrepreneur, I'm working at a bank, come on. Um, it doesn't seem like that's a thing that I would do. I ended up staying there two years because A, the people at SVB are just really nice. And two, the more I learned about the actual banking system, the more I was shocked by how messed up it was. Like the bar was so low that, you know, we could come in and do something which we thought was trivial and simple from a technical point of view. And it would be hailed as like this great achievement. And I was like, oh, the banking system really needs help. And we spent a long time, my co-founder Jim and I, trying to figure out the right strategy to solve this problem generally. And we saw other people start and we went, that's the wrong strategy. They don't actually know how banking works. And we came up with this plan and, you know, that's the company I'm at now, Treasury Prime. We started so, that. So then what, what were the early, the early days of Treasury Prime? Because obviously at this point, you've been involved with a bunch of companies. You've seen it all. So how did you go about surrounding yourself with the right people? We were very careful about realizing the problem we were solving at um, Treasury Prime. Like banking in the U.S. is different than banking in other places. In many ways, the U.S. has the you know best economy in the world. I mean, does have the best economy in the world. And um, but our banking system is really lacking in just fundamental operational things. Like it's hard to move money around. Um, we have a very fragmented banking system, you know, 5,000 banks, 5,000 credit unions, depending on how you count, you know, four or five national regulatory agencies. It's very complicated. So we want to make sure we laid out a plan where we could t do the, the problem we were trying to solve, which is to create a brand new dominant architecture for U.S. banks to communicate with each other. And how do we do that? We said, okay. We went and we raised the seed round, and that was very easy because we were like, I said, look, we've made a lot of money for you before. We can make money for you again. We're experts in the field. Here's our problem. And that was a very easy pitch. It was very, very easy to raise money. Um, and we raised money for that. And I went and reached out to like the best engineers I know, and I know a lot. And I went out to the best um, people to manage the banks, and I know a lot of those. And we started from there. And we've been going ever since. Every time we need to go through a different transition in the company, I use that as an opportunity to raise more capital. It does mean that the seed stage company is very different than the Series A, which is very different than the Series B, which is now very different than the Series C company right now. And in your case, I mean, going from technical, 
because I mean, you've been a technical guy all along, you know, now sure. you are more on the business side of things, you know, as well. So how was that transition for you? You know, we're all good at different things. And I think that Jim and I did build the first product. I mean, we sat in a room and by ourselves for a couple months and just built the product. Um, and so that's helpful that, you know, we have that horsepower. The business side is, um, it's not that different from how the company runs, not a lot differently than how a computer runs, computer system runs, that there are, there have rules, bank, you know, computers are a system, there's a way they work, business is a system, and there's a way that it works, and if you understand how it works, it's actually not that hard. I can tell you that I'm great at product side, and I'm kind of terrible at the marketing side, and so I make sure I surround myself with people who are good at the marketing side, and that has worked well. Like, um, you know, the person I run the company here with, um, uh, the COO, Remy Carroll, and Remy's great at all the things I'm terrible at. He's great at running the go-to-market team. He's great at the level of detail um, that you need there. And I'm great at the product side so we can make sure that the business keeps running that way. So for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Treasury Prime? How do you guys make money? We are a marketplace between fintechs and banks. What we do is we connect directly to um, a U.S. commercially chartered bank. We do deep integrations with them, like we direct connect directly to their internal systems, their cores, their payment gateways, all that. Once we do that, we can do anything the bank can do. And then we put a common API layer across all of our banks. We have, we have a lot of banks. And we then go out and help the bank find fintechs to place um, at each bank. So we have, you know, uh, we have a lot of banks and we have a lot more fintechs than, than banks, obviously. And we put them together because what we're trying to do is create an open banking standard across the U.S. And, you know, we're doing that one bank at a time, but it's definitely working. We charge the banks to use our software. We charge the fintechs to use our software. Um, if you want to open a bank account, we charge you for that. If you want to send a wire, we charge you for that. Um, it's very much a, we're a platform and you pay to use the platform. So in that regard, you know, the fundraising journey for something like this is, is very unusual, right? It has been very yeah. unusual for you guys. How much capital have you, have you raised to date for this? Oh, let's see, what is it? Um, we're almost at 70 million. So, you know, not, not a ton. And why the the process, you know, of racing for something like this has been so unusual? Well, you have to go into this problem knowing that um, the banks are going to be slow. Is that the, there's a lot of players here. There's the fintechs, which are you know tech companies like us, like you know that you you and I talk to every day. But the banks are slower moving, and then the regulators are slower moving than that. And we count each one of these groups as our constituents. Like we. We deal well with each one of them because you can't make a new system without the regulators okay. You can't actually run the system without the banks. And the people who are supplying these new product lines are the fintechs. All your interests have to be aligned. But every time we raise money, every time we went through a transition in the company, it's because we were transitioning to the next step of that. So in the beginning, we had one bank. And we did mostly work for the bank with just a few fintechs. The next stage was we expanded pretty dramatically our number of banks and, you know, added um, a commensurate number of fintechs on top of that. And the third stage, you know, the one we're at, um, you know, before that 
we actually started to build out our, our marketplace of banks. So it was easy to move around. And right now what we're doing is we're actually executing on that marketplace. This is, you know, it's, we're like one step away from the end, um, from our end business model. And the business model right now is that we have all these banks, we have a lot of very large fintechs who use us as a network where they can talk to multiple banks at once, they can move money around. Um, you know, we have, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of deposits that we help people control, and they move that around between different banks. And they do that seamlessly because our platform is the same regardless of the bank. And our platform makes every bank appear to be the same as every other bank. So I guess uh, to really get an understanding then on the scope and size of the business, Chris, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe number of employees or where you guys are at with the company today? Sure. I mean, we're doing really well. We're growing. We have 100 people at the company now, just about. The measure we usually use to see how our overall health is the active, um, how active our platform is, because the interesting thing is our platform. And, you know, we are, you know, we move, um, you know, monthly, what was it last month, like, you know, four or five billion dollars in, in capital, in, I'm sorry, in money movement. And then we have, um, you know, about, because three billion dollars in deposits, you know, like that last month and the month before was more, and then next month it'll be more. But our goal here is to make sure that like all of our sixteen banks have a lot of deposits, have a lot of fintechs, and by the time that happens, we'll have thirty-two banks, and by the time that happens, we'll have sixty-four banks. So we'll just keep growing. So as you're talking about goals and perhaps vision too, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Treasury Prime is realized, what does yeah. that world look like? Oh, that's great. That means there are hundreds of banks, probably not thousands, but hundreds of banks on the Treasury Prime platform and that there are fintechs that are on top of those banks that are making a brand new way that the U.S. can actually run its banking system. That's the goal here. Um, what we're trying to do is solve a government-sized problem. I don't think the banks are going to do it themselves. I don't think the regulators are going to do it themselves. So we will. The nice thing about that is that, you know, it's that phrase, a rising tide raises all boats, that by making the banking system easier to use, make, making it simpler to do innovation, there's going to be things that are invented that we're not even imagining here, that the fintech explosion is just going to increase. So if I had all my dreams that there would be these banks that were running, you know, that were controlling a trillion dollars in deposits because that's about that's about 5% of the U.S. deposits right now. That seems a very reasonable number for fintechs to control. And that leads to a level of innovation that we're not even matching now. In the same way that, you know, the Internet led to a level of innovation that we weren't thinking about that, you know, smartphones led to Uber and things like that. We can't even imagine what's going to happen. But... You need a common platform to do that. As a side effect, whoever runs that platform is going to make an enormous amount of money, which is the pitch to all the investors. And in this case, I mean, we're talking about the future. Imagine if you were able to look at the past and, and be able to reflect on it to guide, you know, perhaps your future. You know, if you had the opportunity of uh, going into a time machine and uh, going back in time and, and having a chat with that uh, younger Chris, you know, maybe that younger Chris that just had moved to San Francisco and that was taking a look around and, you know, thinking how cool it would be one day to have my own company. If you were able to have a chat with that younger self, 
and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Bigger and simpler. Yeah, bigger and simpler. I tell myself that, like, there's not a reason to pick a small problem. Like, all problems are hard, so pick a big problem. It has bigger effects. It's easier to attract um, great people to a big problem than it is to a small problem. In some ways, it's more interesting to solve the big problem. However, make sure at all times that you are ruthless in making sure that your description of the problem, that the whole thing is very, very simple, right? You want your solution to be simple. You want the problem to be simple as possible. Because as you grow, it is very hard to manage that complexity. If it's just, you know, yourself in a room, it's fine. You can do all sorts of nuance. But as you go from 10 to 100 to 1,000 employees, it's hard to manage that. It has to actually be simple or no one's going to keep up with you. So bigger and simpler. I love it. And Chris, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, I'm easy to find, you know, on, I'm easy to find on the internet. You just look for me, you message me on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything, but I'm, this is, I often use this as an exercise. Like if you can't find my email address, like it's published everywhere, then you, you're, we're probably not going to have a good time talking. So just spend, spend five minutes and find that because it's not hard. Amazing. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. <laughs> thank you so much. I enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.